Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. Um, thank you all for joining. Today's setup is a little different. The technical problems were even worse than usual. So if you can see, I'm actually broadcasting from uh, the room. My OBS is having problems. Uh, oh, hang on. Can you hear me now? Uh, okay, sorry about that. Uh, I hope you can hear me now. Thank you very much for joining me for the second episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. Um, I can't tell you there were, again, extra <laughs> technical difficulties. So, yes, as you could see, I wasn't actually streaming. My mic was muted. Um, so I'm doing this from the room. I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, let me just check because I'm not actually in the chat yet. Okay, um, excellent. If you, there's any problems, let me know and I will uh, hopefully sort them out. But for now, this will have to do. So let's just uh, jump right into it. Um, first of all, thank you very much for listening, all of you in chat. It's great to see you as always. Um, and if anyone's listening after, then thank you very much. Today's episode is called Disrupting the Cost of Living. Um, that's a term that actually comes from uh, Alex uh, and his website, uh, ecovillages.io. If you want to check that out afterwards, there's a lot of information there. But that's the uh, subject that I'm going to be going over in this episode. So the way I'm going to break it up is the first 10 minutes, I'm going to go over just very, very few things that I didn't have time to sort of wrap up last episode. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what disrupting the cost of living actually means and go through that. And then finally, I'll leave like 10 minutes in the end, just in case there are some things that I haven't gone over or any questions from any of you in chat that I didn't have time to get to. Okay, so without further ado, let's uh, get started. So last week's <laughs> episode went, I think, a little differently than I had planned. Um, I, uh, we, we basically ended up talking a lot about the, let's call it, anarchical side of the eco-village, what that means. And so I think after, <laughs> after listening the, to the episode again and hearing exactly what was said and what it sounded like, I'd like to clarify just a few points before we carry on. So number one, there are definitely going to be rules in the eco-village. Um, the rules are going to be there to make sure that everyone is safe to make sure that obviously nothing is done to harm either the eco-village and the idea or the members uh, or in fact nature. So there will definitely be rules, there will definitely be regulations. However, if we have to point to a certain point on the spectrum, it will definitely be leaning more towards um, less regulation and the minimal amount of groups involvement in individual and personal affairs. So that's the general idea. I don't want it to sound like, A, it's just this sort of, yeah, place where anyone can go and no rules and lawlessness and do whatever they want. That's not the, uh, <laughs> the image that I'm sort of hoping for. Um, and so, hang on, in the chat, is this uh, playing now on Steamix? If you can hear me, I'm just going to carry on. And if you can't, then let me know. Um, okay. So, yeah, basically the idea is to have a place where everyone is aware of what the red lines, the rules, the big things that you can't do, such as causing harm, etc. 
And once everyone knows that, there's really very little need to sort of make sure that everyone's up to standard and to sort of micromanage those little things. So I just wanted to clear that up. Um, I will say that we went over a lot of things in the last episode. There were a lot of things that people in chat said. Um, ah, Revised Sociology, thanks very much for joining. And you have given me a lot of uh, reading material. I've been working my way through it. I'm not going to uh, touch on any of those things, I think, in this episode because it's a slightly different topic. But I promise I haven't forgotten and I will get back to uh, various things that I haven't, uh, you know, talked about more in depth yet. So, without further ado, uh, let's get started. Disrupting the cost of living, what does that actually mean? Well, as I mentioned, it's a phrase that Eco Alex, I don't know if he coined it, I should have to ask him, but it's where I heard it first. And um, it's basically talking about disrupting this industry. And I won't go into the economic um, sort of the, the worldview that it represents, but you can definitely go to the website and read much more in depth about that. I'm going to talk about the practicality of what that means. And so before I had even heard of this disrupting the cost of living and the eco-village idea in the model, as I was traveling, uh, living my life and traveling the world and meeting people, as I'm sure you all have, I was coming face to face with this problem, the problem of money and the problem of debt. And it seemed that no matter who I met, whether they were young people just starting their life, sort of early 20s, or pensioners who were after that, so much of the discussion and so much of their sort of strife and time and energy was, dare I say, wasted on this need for survival, this need to come up with the amount of money that's necessary in order to live, basically. And it took me a long time until I started to see it as a, as a pattern. And I think it, it, it really became something that was close to my heart to understand how this situation came to be, that animals were allowed to live free without debt and people all over the world, and I'm not even going to talk about, you know, Western society, but people in very dire situations with no clean drinking water or they have to walk miles just to reach a school, they also are under this system of debt and have to find some way of earning money. And obviously, in the West, myself included, we have so many ways, you know, the Steemit community is a great example of how many avenues are now open for us to make money. But a lot of these people around the world who are living in these very, very dire situations don't have those opportunities, don't have the education um, to, to know about the opportunities and then to utilize them, and really started life, it would seem, uh, a few steps back. And it was once I'd started meeting these people, I, I'll never forget this one person who I met in India on the beaches and they were selling necklaces. Um, you know, these regular sort of, uh, uh, I can't remember what they're called, but the beads. And I can't remember even how much it cost, you know, but ridiculous uh, amount of money. And they had these 200 necklaces on them and they were just walking that beach. I mean, if I was imagining you know, if you had to grade how hard someone was working for money, they were just traping that beach back and forth all day for hours, every day, 
And they were there every day. I was sitting on the beach, you know, drinking, smoking, having a great time. And I'd see them walking back and forth. And eventually I actually engaged them in conversation. I, I ended up buying a couple of necklaces. But more importantly, I asked a little bit about why, why he was doing this, why was, you know, this was the work that he could do. And after talking to him, he told me that his family has land around them, not a vast amount by uh, Indian proportions, but I can't remember exactly, it was, you know, around four or five acres, but not a small piece of land, certainly a substantial piece where I come from. And when I asked what they did, they said that they grow rice, and since rice is um, government uh, subsidy, there's a set price that they can sell it, um, the price that's fixed by the government is the is, it limits the profit that they can make. And as they're growing rice, obviously, with modern agriculture, the payments that, that the amount of money that they have to invest in fertilizers and the tractor and maintenance and all of these other things, it just became such a high cost that they couldn't turn a profit. And he's here in these months as an extra income going around the beaches and following the tourist uh, season and trying to make ends meet, basically. And this story, I don't know why, and it's not a tremendously tough story, and there are people in much worse, but something really touched me at that moment. I, I never forget, I'm still in touch with him, and I'm still waiting to invite him to come to the eco-village and learn with us when I have a, a place. But it really touched me, and I, I kept thinking about that conversation for the rest of the trip and until now. Because here's a person who is willing to do whatever it takes, willing to put in an enormous amount of very hard work, physical labor, boring, you know, not even doing, just walking back and forth sales, and the amount of money that he's going to make is so minuscule. If I compare it to anything else in the West, it just seems so um, lacking in, in, you know, it was unjust, and it really, it really hit me to the core. And that got me thinking, and it was after meeting him and a lot of other people and thinking about this problem very deeply that I came to this realization. Um, I think once I started learning about sustainability, I realized this very important lesson, which is that all of those things that we're paying for, um, what we call the cost of living, all of the things that we are spending a lot of our money on, and this person was actually trying to make money just for food and water, clean water, you know, maybe education, but certainly not a lavish lifestyle. Most of those things are actually provided for free. And that was a real shock for me. I'm assuming that some of the people who are hearing this, some of you are quite aware of this, and this is a very basic concept. But to me, that was the starting point, realizing that the solution to money was um, replacing what we had to pay for with something that was provided for free. And so that's the concept that I wanted to talk about today, and I want to break it down. So there are lots of different models, and when we talk about human needs and basic human needs and physical human needs, there's lots and lots of different theories. I decided to go with, let's call it the Earthship uh, theory, the Earthship model, which is Mike Reynolds, the inventor of the Earthship. If, if you've never heard of an Earthship, um, I will go into it much more in depth. 
Suffice to say, just for now, it's a very, very advanced technique for natural building, and it's a house that basically takes care of its residents. I won't say any more now, there's going to be a lot more information in the future, but when Michael Reynolds, the architect, sat down and, and was designing this house, he broke it down into five basic human needs, and those are water, food, shelter, energy, as in power, electricity, and waste management. And those were the sort of five basic needs that he decided to focus on. And I want to go through these, uh, through these five um, to talk a little bit more into what it means to have them provided for us for free. So when we look at them in order of importance, I think that the way that we would classify them, although this is obviously debatable and I think each will have their own, but definitely water being the highest priority in terms of how long you can survive without it, then food, then shelter, and then energy and waste management, I guess, is sort of interchangeable, but let's say that energy can provide a lot more um, sort of survival ability uh, through technology. So let's treat them in that order and go through it. First of all, water. There's, I'd say there are two different theories as to a good source of water, and I'm going to talk a little bit about them and how that applies to the eco-village. So the number one source, which we obviously uh, all recognize, is rain. That's where all of the water comes from, and the rain falls for free, and it falls uh, pretty much everywhere except for deserts to a certain amount. I have to say that even in deserts you get a certain amount of rain, but it's in a very short period of time. Um, but that's not to say that it's not possible to live off an earthship in the desert. In fact, it actually has been done and is still being done. So really and truly, everywhere in the, in the world, um, you can find a way to get the water that you need. And so having rain is one way, and another is, let's call it a spring, basically water that has fallen, the rain that has come, and is filtered through the earth or bed, um, or a rock or cave, some kind of uh, substrate, and it comes out the other end. And so these two systems are very different, and I'm going to treat them separately at first, but I think that the best option would always be a combination of these two. But for now, I'm going to talk about them separately, and uh, later on maybe we'll see if we have time to talk about systems that could incorporate both. So the first and the easiest, I think, is collecting rainwater. Now, the amount of rain, the amount of roof surface that's needed, etc., is not really important. What's important is that right now, we are, well, I don't know actually if we, but most of the people, and I am, are paying uh, for our water. Now, this water comes to us from a great distance away, uh, for, for most people, I will say. So obviously, the, the, more, the closer you are to nature and the closer you are to your water source, uh, the better and healthier it is. But when I talk about most of the people in the world today, I think most of us are living very far away from the water source. The water source is usually, um, to a certain degree, it can be unclean and the water has to go through a certain amount of filtration. And so the water is really being treated in a, in a very unnatural way, usually having certain chemicals added to it. And that's the state that the water comes and then sits in the pipes until we actually turn them on. 
So what we're talking about here is that same principle of bringing the source of the water as close to us as possible and having it as fresh as possible. So this is done in Australia, I think, more prevalently than anywhere in the world. And that's where most of the, uh, I think, leading rainwater um, experts uh, are, live and are, are doing this. There are obviously others around the world, but if you really want to get to the people who have been doing it for a long time over there, it's a very, very common practice. Pretty much everyone has um, their rainwater collection, even if it's not uh, just for them and for the animals. It's a very prolific thing. I only mention that because when I, whenever I sort of speak to people about collecting rainwater, whenever they say, oh, you've got water on the land, what are you going to do? They always seem very, very surprised when I talk about drinking rainwater. There's, there's, I think at some point along the way, we have this concept where once the rain falls, it becomes dirty, and then you have to have some kind of filtration process in order to clean it, which there is a certain amount of truth to that, and I'll talk about that in the springs more, but for our case, when we talk about a rainwater system, we do plan for the rain to fall onto a surface. Um, I believe that metal is uh, sort of the best of all world surfaces, meaning it can lead the water very quickly, it's very clean relatively, it doesn't break apart, um, and it, again, it doesn't retain any of the water, so it's a, a very good surface. This is again from Mike Reynolds, and there are other ways of doing it. There are lots of different roof surfaces that you can use. But basically, you take that water, whatever surface you use, and you run it through um, tubes to get to a certain uh, tank that will collect it. Now, along the way, you might have a few filtration systems. You could have like a first flush system, which means when that first rain comes, it usually collects all of the dirt and dust that's uh, been sitting for the whole dry season. And so that initial first flush has to go somewhere and you usually you would like to design it to be able to get clogged up on the way, sort of um, like a, a filter along the way that it will catch it. And then the rest of the water that comes will actually carry on to the tank and be saved there. Now, from that moment, we're going to talk, okay, I'm not going to go too depth into the actual system in terms of pressurizing, etc. But for now, we'll talk about the rainwater system as a system that collects the rain whenever it falls and then stores it for a later use. That's basically it. Now, on the other hand, we have the spring um, and the spring system works a little bit differently. This is where the rainwater is collected in some point very high up. Uh, preferably, you know, on a hilltop or somewhere that's uh, got enough room for gravity to work. And then over time, that water trickles down into either a spring or maybe a river or a stream. And you can actually pump that water and take that water straight into your pipes. Um, and that's very, very clean and fresh water as well. Now, there's a certain debate as to which is cleaner and better, and I won't go into it now. Um, but I think... In my mind, both of those systems are sufficient to be able to uh, provide for, let's say, a family um, living under a, a standard-sized house. Uh, obviously, if you're going for a tiny house or the smaller the roof surface area, the more water you need. But I will just say that these methods have been tried in places of 300 millimeters and less. So that's a very, very small amount of rain per year. So generally speaking, anywhere in the world, including Taos, New Mexico, Jordan, you know, the Middle East, 
it's possible to collect enough rainwater, clean rain, uh, sorry, to collect enough water for you to live off throughout the year. So that's water. Let's move on to the next, which is food. Now, the whole question of how to grow enough food uh, in order to survive is, I think, a debate that sort of has been going on for a long time. And I think, uh, well, in my experience, I've been talking about these ideas for a while, and most of the people who I approach who, who don't have any experience find it, again, very, very hard to believe that it's possible for one person to grow all the food they need or for a family to grow all of the food they need. And if it is possible in the off chance, then it requires many, many months of work. You can't take any time off. You can never leave your house. Uh, you've got to cure and, and, and um, store and basically keep a lot of this food for the winter months, etc., etc. There's this very, very, uh, I think, old-fashioned view of what a farmer's life is like. And I would like to mention here, in terms of the eco-village model, that that's a very, very different system to what we are planning to do. And so the ultimate underlying uh, priority of all of these systems, and I think this is particularly true with the food production, has to be, the underlying priority has to be the minimal amount of maintenance. And this obviously is talked about in permaculture as well. But generally speaking, when you are setting up a system, if you've got a system that can produce, let's say, you know, 200% at 100% uh, maintenance, then you would want to halve that to 50% maintenance for 100%. That was a little bit confusing. Let me rephrase that to make it a bit simpler. If you have the option of making more food with more work, that's not the way we're going. That's basically what sort of led to a lot of the monoculture that we see. Very, very high yields in very, very short amount of time, but for a, a lot of work and a lot of input, both energy and resources. And so the system for the EcoVerge model is the opposite. The minimal amount of input, the minimal amount of work, and the maximum produce, the maximum yield that you can get from the system uh, uh, sustaining itself, basically. And so when we're looking at these kind of systems, it might seem that that would make it difficult to produce enough food, and that's why people believe that it's not possible, or if it is, then it's a lot of hard work. But the thing about these systems, specifically with the eco-village model, is that over time, these systems become more robust and over time they become more stable. Much like a tree that it should, if you're doing things right, be producing more yield every year until it matures fully. And so the same thing with a food forest or even with a garden system. Over time, uh, as you plant more perennials that are growing and as you've got more self-seeding plants, the maintenance and the work that you have to put in grows to be less and less, and the amount of yield that you're getting, especially per input, becomes more, greater and greater. So that's the general outline of how to approach food production. So when we're talking about these systems, I've mentioned it before, and it's a very big part of it, the food forest system is a system that requires a lot of um, initial work in order to get it started, but then maybe apart from just clearing the path so that you can actually get in or chop and drop, there's very, very little amount of work required 
and the produce keeps coming, the yield keeps coming, and the idea is for it to be abundant to the point where there's more than you actually need. This has been done before. This isn't just some kind of pipe dream. Um, it does require planning, and that's going to be a lot of what we're going to be doing in the beginning. But in terms of food production, every house, every uh, unit, as it were, will be providing the food that it needs from the land around. Now, having said that, I don't see the, the eco-villages being made up of these small gardens because the smaller systems will obviously have less um, ability to grow and, and they will produce less and it would be more efficient to have a continuous food forest that grows throughout the eco-village where everywhere you go there's food being produced but in terms of the land required, it's the same amount of land uh, per each unit, meaning when you're doing the measurements, I can't remember the exact uh, measurements right now, maybe I'll have a look afterwards what we said, but um, per each house, you have a certain amount of space that's allocated within the eco-village, and that is enough to provide enough food for the whole year for that individual or family. So that's talking about water and food. The next that we're going to talk about is shelter, and this is really where the Earthship uh, comes into play. The eco-village will be a, a, an eco-village of Earthships, and the Earthship is designed in and of itself to collect uh, the water that it needs, and so that the residents need, and to produce the food. There are, there's an actual greenhouse incorporated into the design of each Earthship, and I actually don't know to scale how much food, from what I know, the size of the greenhouse isn't enough to grow all of their food year-round, including grains and pulses, etc. But certainly it will be a boost, and in terms of different kinds of tropical fruit or certain climates that you can't reach outside, inside the greenhouse it gives you a much wider range that you can work with. So, not the only source of food, but in addition to what is grown in the eco-village. And obviously, the house itself provides shelter, not just uh, in terms of the structure, but it incorporates a lot of different methods. Now, to go over the whole Earthship structure and all of its ingenuity would be a lot more than just uh, an hour podcast. But I would like to mention one very important deal, um, which is the passive heating and cooling. So if you've never heard of the term passive heating and cooling, basically means that the structure, the house, warms and cools itself um, without any energy, without the need for electricity to power it or burning any kind of uh, gas. So the way that it all works is convection. Um, the different temperatures are drawing heat from one place to another and the structure of the eco-village utilizes this so that in the winter because of the angle of the windows a lot more sun is allowed to go in that sun heats up the huge earth berm that the earthship is made of and that berm uh, that amount of earth can store a lot of that heat throughout the day and once the evening comes, the temperature drops. Because of the temperature drop, the space inside the Earthship, the, the, the room, as it were, becomes colder. And then that sucks the heat out from the walls. 
and the heat basically warms up the house um, from the inside. This happens automatically as the temperature drops. So it's a self-regulating passive heating system uh, with no energy. When I heard this first, it just blew my mind. It's really one of the most amazing things I've seen. Um, and the same for cooling, a slightly different approach, but the angle of the windows reflects most of the sun's heat in the summer. And you have um, cooling tubes, which allow cold air to run depending, but uh, let's say a few hundred meters um, underground to the house. And then if you have a sort of skylight that opens in the ceiling, the hot air goes out from the top and that sucks in the cool air from the bottom through the tubes. And this is, it functions as a natural air conditioner. So those are just two very, very small concepts from the Earthship. And this, this idea of a shelter that the Earthship uh, represents, it really is all encompassing. They've had a lot of work with um, places that have been hit with disasters, people who have lost their homes, who have lost uh, basically everything. And they've come and built up these, they're called survival models. A very very short amount of time and basically provide all of the basic needs that these people uh, have so that's a little bit about the shelter um, how are we doing for time okay not bad the next two topics are slightly different and so I want to just mention one thing here which is very important for the whole idea of the eco village model um, the reason I'm doing this podcast, the reason I believe in the Earthship model, and the reason I'm investing all of my time in this is because of that meeting that I mentioned and a lot of other meetings like them. And I realized that in today's world, there are so many people who are living without those basic needs being met, whether it's unclean water, not having enough food, you know, children who are literally dying from starvation. And in my mind, that is simply unbelievable and really unacceptable. And it did bother me for a long time without my having any way of, of, of approaching it. How on earth am I supposed to help young children in somewhere that I'm not next to? But with the eco-village model, what it's meant to do in my mind and the ultimate goal is that it can provide this answer for people who don't have those basic needs. And so if we just stop here and we don't talk about electricity and we don't talk about waste management, just water, food and shelter. The water system itself, when you talk about setting up the tank, there's an in initial cost um, depending on the size and a few of the, the different parts that go with that. Um, in terms of the food production, there's even less cost because there's very little infrastructure that you actually need and tools are basically good enough to get you started and then seeds. And the Earthship itself is designed to be made from materials that are found throughout the world. Most of the building material is earth, packed earth and tires. And a lot of it utilizes, a lot of the building utilizes basically rubbish, um, empty cans, old bottles, things that we can find around us. And this has been proven when they went to do this project. My point is that the idea that we can solve the problem of starvation and no clean water and shelter 
for all of the people in the world who currently don't have it, to me is enough of a reason to give this my best shot. And I honestly do believe the, the idea, if you're wondering, okay, well, how are you going to do it? You're going to go around and build it? No. We want to have an educational center in the eco-village that people can visit and come and learn and, and go on and take those tools with them. But we're obviously aware that most of the people won't be able to get there. A lot of the people won't have money to get there or won't have any other resources um, to be able to visit. And the one tool that I can see working more than any is really using the internet, as I'm doing now with this incredible you know, system and the podcast, I'm talking to people around the world, educating freely and providing the information and the knowledge for free to people who will be able to then use it and go and build their house and go and grow their food and go and collect their rainwater, I think is an idea that's not only possible, but could very well change the world quite literally. Now, I tend to be a little bit of a, uh, a visionary, I'll call it. Possibly some people would say, uh, you know, delusional. But it, if there is a chance that getting this information could help children not starve to death, could help a family have drinking water, could help, you know, uh, people who are living homeless right now, then I think that is enough of a reason for me to continue working on this and to dedicate my life to it. So that was just a little side note that I'd like you to remember when we're talking about the eco-village model. It's not just how am I going to live free of debt and do whatever I want, but it really does have the potential to free so many human beings from really disastrous uh, situations. And I will say all of that because it relates specifically to the water, the food and the shelter. When it comes to power, electricity and waste management, those are things that tend to be a little bit harder to just improvise and be able to provide for anyone no matter what their level of education. I'm not saying that it's not possible because it definitely is possible and there are so many stories of people doing this the amount of electronic waste that we have in the world today um, that can be reused to set up these systems for people who don't have money for new ones is really a huge opportunity. But there is a big difference between growing your own food, which literally takes nearly no input, and, for example, setting up a solar system or setting up a hydro uh, power plant. So that's why I sort of separate those two. And we'll carry on now to the energy systems, which are a crucial part. And for people in the West and people who are living uh, in a system where they're making money and trying to, trying to provide for themselves, I believe that the energy system is definitely something that's both affordable and doable. I mean, I know so many people here on, on Steemit uh, are already doing it, and I uh, wait for the day to be part of them. So when we're talking about the energy systems... And this I'm going to go over a little bit um, the options that are available today because I think there's very, very interesting options that maybe some of you haven't heard of. So I think the most famous ones are obviously solar power, photovoltaic panels that convert sunlight to electricity, um, hydropower, where you use the current of the water, the stream of water, to basically turn a turbine and generate electricity, and uh, wind power, wind turbines, which do the same with the wind. 
Now, the other part of those systems that I hear very little talking about is the energy storage system. And with almost all of the systems that I've seen that I've heard of today, the energy storage system is always chemical batteries. Uh, batteries that utilize different chemicals and all of these chemicals that I've heard of are rather nasty and not very eco-friendly. And so when we were thinking about the eco-village and we wanted to both be a natural project that utilizes only natural materials and also something that we can do that's self-sustainable. If we have to order a new battery every 10 years, uh, that's not very self-sustainable and still dependent on the system. And so the system that we found that could technically replace the chemical battery um, there's lots of different terms for it, but one of the names, one of the systems is called the flywheel. If anyone's ever heard of it, it's not very famous. Um, these are basically systems, batteries, which store the electricity or store the energy uh, in a different format. So they don't store them as a, a chemical difference. Um, maybe I'll just go over a battery very quickly in case I'm losing some of you to the technicalities. Basically, you get your electricity from the sun, the, the panels converts it to electricity and it sends it down the wire and it gets to the battery. And then the battery takes on this electricity and stores it and waits until you need it again. And when you need it, it sort of releases that energy. Now that process is, um, it's constantly depleting the battery's ability. Um, and over time, you actually have to replace the battery when the battery is dead. The system that I'm talking about stores that energy in what's called potential energy, uh, potential kinetic energy. So for example, I've now generated electricity from my panels. I use that electricity to run a motor, a pump, and that pump pumps water up a hill. Now that the water is pumped up there, I've stops receiving electricity, the pump is no longer water, uh, sorry, the pump is no longer working, but the water is at the top of the hill waiting. Now, uh, when the time comes that you want to utilize the electricity, you can let that water run down and the kinetic energy that the water produces that was stored as potential energy can then get converted back to electricity and you can utilize it. That's, I mean, this is a system that I'm not proficient in yet. I'm sort of starting to learn about it. But that's the basic general idea. Using some form of battery that's not chemical to store the energy and then use it later on. Uh, another example of this, the flywheel that I mentioned, stores that energy in motion. And so you've got a sort of wheel that's spinning, a gyro, and when the electricity comes, it turns it and then it keeps that momentum going. And when you want to run the power out, you simply use that momentum and convert it to electricity. Um, okay, this is a big system. So I think I'm gonna move on now. Ah, hang on, I've just got in chat. Tainted Blood said, I've watched videos on setting up your own battery packs and converters for solar. Yes, there are lots and lots of videos today. A lot of the systems that are being bought, the solar systems are very easy. And I will mention that our first system will probably be chemical batteries and um, a regular solar wind uh, system. 
because of the ease of it and because right now the technology for these different battery systems is not yet there. I haven't actually found one place that's selling an actual battery unit. So I will keep you posted and hopefully with time we actually have a few connections for companies that are developing the product and we hope to become an experimental farm in the eco village where they can come and sort of test it and uh, allow us to use it. But that's all in the future. Just an idea to think about energy storage and the fact that the eco village model really is attempting to be both 100% natural and also um, as self-sustainable, meaning we can do whatever we need uh, in order to survive. So that's a little bit about the energy systems and I can see that we're getting close to the end. So I'm going to move on to the last system, which is waste management. Now, the truth is that this system is probably, how should I put this, the least necessary since we all know that when we go out for a walk, we can sometimes take care of our own waste management without having any complex uh, system set up. And so I do want to point out that of the systems, this is probably um, the, the simplest to set up. Now, having said that, I do want to say that it's very important to do it properly. And since we're dealing with waste management, uh, improper treatment, anything that isn't 100% can definitely be dangerous. So if you're, not, if you're not actually trying to manage your waste, and if you're just, as it were, you know, going out to the woods whenever you need, it's not actually that dangerous. But as soon as you're collecting it all in one place, that's when it starts becoming more of a, a danger. So there are many different systems and from what I know, the building codes for different countries are very, very, um, you know, very different uh, in different areas. And so I don't want to talk about anywhere that I don't know. As far as I'm aware, in Portugal, uh, there is no need for, um, uh, for a septic tank, meaning... Okay, so I should talk a little bit about the different systems. The common system that most places that are sort of off-grid are allowed to use is a septic tank. And this is a big tank that basically allows for the waste to come and sit and settle. And over time, the bacteria break it up and turn it into harmless, basically, compost. And then uh, that's allowed to, to uh, filter out over a large spill area underground. Um, and that's obviously in need of monitoring to make sure that the levels are healthy and it's a it's a it's a it's a rather risky system i've known a few people who've had it break down and when you've got a problem or a leak it can be a real issue so for that reason and it's also quite more expensive to be honest a different system that i think is uh, in terms of setting up and the first system you're going to work with, I don't think there's another system that's better, easier, cheaper than the compost toilet. If you've never heard of a compost toilet, there's a lot written about it. Humanure, uh, the book, is an excellent source. But the concept is very, very simple. You've basically got a hole which you fill up with human waste. And when it fills up, you then seal it off and you let it decompose. And after six months, a year, however long it takes, uh, according to the uh, environment that it's in, that's basically turned into compost and you can take that and spread it into the land. And it's amazing stuff. 
Now, a few things that I want to say since the compost toilet is usually a subject that some people have a little bit uh, are a little apprehensive about. I think if you never tried it, it could sound maybe strange, um, to say the least. First of all, the fact that you don't flush and you don't have that sound and no water is makes it already feel very, uh, <laughs> I don't know, different. But for starters, uh, there is no smell. Um, there's no, it's actually a lot less different, I think, once you actually go in. When you go in, it looks just like a regular toilet and um, you basically use it the same, you just don't flush. And in the end, you pour sawdust. There's lots of different things, but something, and that helps with the smell. So when you go and use it, the people who are using it, the people who will be visiting, you don't actually have to do much differently at all. At the end of it, obviously, when you seal it up and you uh, put it aside, those people, you know, might have a little bit of a worse job. But, uh, <laughs> but you certainly have to have a certain love of compost uh, to be willing to work with it in that proximity. Having said all that, the experience of using a compost toilet is really, in my mind and my experience, is very, very similar and uh, nothing to be afraid of. Okay, I can see that Rondon said, are you supposed to fertilize with human waste? Sorry, that microphone. Um, yes, but it's not untreated. So human waste uh, decomposes over the time. Basically, when we really talk about it, the fact is that we have human waste right now. But when I flush the toilet, that's it. And as long as I don't have it clogging up some pipe somewhere, I don't really have to think about it anymore. But somebody does, and all of that waste and sewage goes to a place where it's, you know, collected into this massive uh, one single area and then treated chemically over there. What I'm proposing is that when you have um, the human waste in the compost toilet, it's constantly being mixed with the uh, sawdust, with the dry material. And so the composting does actually start before. Once it's fulled and you close it off, that whole system is basically um, a, 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 an autonomous system. It's a closed off system and it's working within itself. And as soon as the bacteria are finishing, uh, finished decomposing, the process stops. This is how Earth is created, basically. Whether it's human waste or whether it's animal waste or whether it's any other, um, you know, these bacteria come and they consume and decompose the, uh, the, the harmful elements and turn them into nutrition for plants. Uh, this, is a, this is the only system that we have for creating fertilizer. And the idea is to take something that is technically a problem, which is waste management. We need to find a way to manage our waste and utilizing it not only to take care of it, but also to be able to reuse it in the eco-village as fertilizer for the plants. So, okay, I can see in the chat a few more things. Um, yes, ah, oh, yes, very good point. Revised Sociology says, I think people tend to use it on trees, not your daily veg. So it's the same thing with a lot of these things, gray water as well. Whenever you're talking about vegetables, especially, um, you know, root vegetables or if spraying leaf vegetables, always better to keep them further apart, definitely using the compost in large areas and using it, uh, yeah, not in the vegetable patch. Uh, orchards, definitely, but also all of the um, 
sort of the, the, the plants that aren't used for food. So whether it's wood burning or whether it's for timber or all the different uses that we have for the plants, uh, it would be better to use it there. Having said that, uh, it is important to say that the fertilizer, that's the, the compost, sorry, that comes from that, um, when it's measured, doesn't have uh, toxic levels of anything. So this has been tried method and it's been tested and I do need to say um, that in terms of the dangers, it is not actually, once it's finished composting, uh, it's not actually a danger anymore. Having said that, I wouldn't recommend eating it as is. Um, okay, Tainted Blood said, eating less processed food will help if you plan to use your bodily waste for growing foods. Absolutely. You know what? That is such a good point, Tainted Blood. Um, with all of these things, as soon as you commit to live a natural life or as soon as you're collecting your own water or you're eating your own food, it sort of forces you to generate this different lifestyle where you can't really let any of these processed products into your life anymore. So cleaning products suddenly have to be something that you've made and we've recently started making our products here. This is the first time I've used natural cleaning products made from orange peel and vinegar. And I have to say, I'm actually quite surprised at how well it works. But uh, it's really amazing what you can do when you really decide, okay, what if we take out the processed food and the processed products and we try and replace it with something natural? And we discover that all of these processed foods and all of these processed products are actually based on natural products, sometimes less strong, less whatever it is, less uh, uh, able to survive a long shelf life, etc. But they're still based on these natural products that we can get. I don't know, for me, it sometimes feels like I've forgotten that cleaning products used to be natural and you didn't have the processed cleaning products. So that's a very good point, Tainted Blood. Thank you very much. Um, Rondon says, I've heard that using human waste for gardens is somehow harmful, but using it to fertilize crops that animals eat isn't bad. When you say human waste, do you mean compost or do you mean actually uh, the, the waste in its original form? Because there is, there is definitely a difference uh, between the two. Um, from what I know, the compost that's created... Sorry, my microphone keeps moving. Uh, from what I know, the compost that's created um, from human waste is perfectly fine to use on food crops as well. Again, not... I wouldn't suggest on using it with uh, uh, root vegetables. And, I mean, there shouldn't be any problem using it with, uh, with different vegetables that are growing above the ground. But you know what, Rondon? I will actually look into that and I will see uh, what, I, what I can get because uh, I may well be wrong. I may well be talking shit. Absolutely. Um, Crimson Clad said, we get weird about poo. We definitely do. Animal poo to fertilize our crops is okay and we feed them crops that we put our poo on. Go figure. <laughs> the shit is going to catch up with you sometime. Definitely, definitely. Well, uh, we come from and we will return to uh, in one way or another. Um, Tainted Blood says, well, manure from healthy animals eating unprocessed foods is fine for fertilizing foods. The big issue is farmers feed cows corn, which they're not meant to eat, and then over-medicate them, which means the money they saved on the corn was spent on medications to prevent the health issues. That is a tremendously good point. 
I, I won't even get into the treatment of livestock today. And yeah, you, you've said it so well yourself, the amount of energy and time that's wasted then on all of the health issues which are caused by these certain life conditions that we're trying to force them in order to make them more productive. So keeping them in a small area and feeding them the cheapest food so that they make the most, but then it doesn't work. We've tried it. We really have tried it and it doesn't work. So that's a very good point. Um, how much shit does one person produce in a year anyway? That's a very good question, revised sociology. I actually, I, I'm, I believe I have read um, the statistic. I think it was for a family of four. But uh, I don't remember it offhand. I will be looking at all of these for the, for the next episode, guys. And I will do my best to come back with uh, all the answers. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I would assume I would assume a few barrow loads. I mean, it also, I think, depends if you're talking about, yeah, one person living alone. Because as soon as you have, I think, you know, two people who are doing it together uh, in one compost toilet, I mean, I don't think it actually works out to be, you know, exactly the same as if it was one person and one person. Um, oh, Google, well, excellent. So the Carrie Allen says about 320 pounds, which is 145 kilos, thank you, of poo a year per average person, says Google. And that's pre-compost, I assume. So 145 kilograms, it loses, oh, I can't remember. Does anyone here remember the, the water that it loses? I don't know, but let's put it this way. It might not be enough compost for whatever your land is, but whatever we're making, we're making it anyway, and we have to deal with it somehow. So, you know, why not just cut out all of that oh, underground piping and plumbing and sewage treatment and all of that and just have a very simple system that collects composts and then you can take um, I don't know. That's <laughs> that's my personal opinion, but uh, I do think that it's a it's a really magnificently simple system that can literally be utilized anywhere and make compost. I mean, don't forget, people sell compost. I mean, people actually make compost for a living and then ship it off. I, I always find this so fascinating that farmers will buy compost, you know, in huge loads. And then just find, a, you know, burn off all of their straw and, you know, scoop up all of their cow shit and find somewhere to drop. It's just, it's, it's bizarre. Um, but there you go. Oh, I'm glad to hear of sociology. sociology. Sorry, I <laughs> changed your name there. Yes, I think people who have tried the compost toilet, whether it was in a festival or in a farm or somewhere, it's sort of, well, it depends on which one you go into. I've been into some that I swear looked nicer than some bathrooms I went to at weddings. I mean, you know, these beautiful cob rooms and lots of plants that smells and colorful. And you've always got this very uh, clear sheet of instructions of what you need to do and everything. Anyway, it's an experience. If you've never tried it, make sure you uh, find a compost toilet near you. And if you can't find one, and we'll be building one and we'll uh, invite you to come and uh, try. Um, okay, ah, the Ann said a lot of people around here have compost. Yeah, but a lot of people here are totally off grid. Exactly. The, this is a little bit of my problem because I started one last week and then I realized 
that really isn't the beginning and a lot of people might not know about growing your own food or collecting rainwater and so I want this podcast to have a little something for everyone whether you're totally off-grid uh, interested in the eco-village model but really have got all of the basics down and whether you're someone who is completely new to this idea and have no idea you know what any of this means and I think that's a little bit hard to find the, the balance between the two so I'm still trying to find my way obviously the audience here in discord and on Steemit, from what I've seen are much much more aware of a lot of these things than uh, the people I meet but at the same time, I think there is, you know, there is some importance in trying to provide this information for people who might not be aware of the, uh, the possibilities. Um, we are the smart. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, that's why I'm here. Um, anyway, so thank you very much for bearing with me. I hope this wasn't too basic. I hope uh, it's a given you maybe some new ideas or how do you think about some old ones? And just to say that the next episode in my last few minutes is going to be about the other needs that we have in a community. So those five needs, water, food, shelter, energy, and waste management were sort of the physical needs. And the next week I'm going to talk about other needs like a sense of community and sort of psychological needs, uh, as it were, uh, sociological needs, we could say. Um, Rondon, I still want my shit to flow far away <laughs> Well, you know, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? Isn't that like the stand-up comedian who said, uh, if I could have the perfect body, people always talk about it, having this, you know, tall and... No, the perfect body is where you've got your ass miles and miles away from you, so you don't have to deal with any of that shit. Um, so that's a good one. Okay, I've actually got, let's see what the, oh wow, three, excellent, two minutes left, so that's okay with me. Uh, I'm going to be signing off. Thank you very, very much for joining in, for listening, if you're listening live in the Discord channel. Thank you all so much, I really appreciate it. I'm not even going to go through all the names because there are too many. If you're listening to this recording afterwards, thank you very much. Um, let me, uh, yeah, make sure you join in next week, Thursday, 10 o'clock UTC. Hopefully, it will actually be working next time and the streaming will go okay, but you never know. Um, I've been Olev. This has been the Discomfort Zone podcast and see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>